Our passage today is out of James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. But as it connects to the last couple weeks, I'm going to go back and read from James chapter 1, verse number 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before the God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And in chapter 2, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring And fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let's pray. Dear God and Father, this message is heavy, it's convicting. But you don't leave us in conviction, you sent your Son in the gospel. God, help us to see our sin where it may be. Help us to grow, to become more like you in our words and our actions, that we may have your heart, that we may be like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. See, last week we learned that real religion is not simply doing the word. It is the outward working of true faith from a changed heart. So as we grow in the gospel and become more like our Father, the gospel should change us. And it should affect us socially and personally through a controlled tongue, care for the needy, and a growth in personal holiness. True religion, true 
Christianity is moved by a Christ-shaped heart of mercy. That Christ-shaped heart of mercy controls the tongue when we talk to people made in the image of God. It cares for the poor and needy. See, poor here has both a physical and a spiritual sense. And it keeps itself from the impurities of worldliness around us as we grow in personal holiness. Last week's verses form a bridge that set the tone for the rest of the book. And they really introduce the themes for the rest of the book of James. In the first half of James chapter 2, which will be this week's message and next week's message, we see a form of worldliness that denies the gospel and doesn't look anything like God our Father. When we think of God, what are some of the attributes that we think about? We think about His holiness, His righteousness, His omnipotence, His omniscience. Maybe we think about His love. Maybe we think about His mercy. But many of us fail to ever think about God's impartiality. Why is that? It wasn't one of the things that popped up on my list when I was thinking before this message. I think many of us fail to ever think about God's impartiality. And I believe it's because to our hearts, at least to my heart, the idea of being impartial is so foreign to our way of thinking and living, that we choose to not think about it. We blind ourselves to this reality. And yet everything we know to be true about God is that the value of a person is based upon the value of their soul. And this attitude of partiality disregards the truth of our faith. See, James here, as a loving pastor, brings us back to this issue and lovingly confronts us. He's not writing here to condemn us, to kick us while we're down in our guilt. He says, my brothers, and you will see that all throughout the book of James, my brothers, we have a problem that needs to be addressed. We need to talk about this. I love you. I care for you. And it's not something that we can ignore. See, if the life of God really beats in our hearts, James has set out a series of tests for us to determine whether our faith is real. We remember we looked at the test of how do we respond to trials? How do we respond to temptation? And how do we react to the word of God? And here in chapter 2, James lays out another test. He gives us another thing that we can look at. Are we partial? How Do we look at the poor spiritually and physically? How do we look at the needy? Do we actually have the heart of God? And see, if our faith is real and the love of God is in us, then partiality has no place among us, no place in the life of the body of the church. See, James applies this idea of the previous passage to a specific situation within the Christian community, under the umbrella term partiality. Christian, partiality creates division and shame, thereby denying the gospel. The gospel creates unity and a new identity, causing us to desire to have the words, actions, and heart of God in all areas of our life. So I think it's important that we understand this 
term, this idea of partiality, of what is it? I think a good definition, it's kind of a mix of a bunch of definitions that I looked at, but a good definition that's simple is an unfair bias in favor of something or someone. An unfair bias in favor of something or someone. Synonyms for partiality include prejudice, favoritism, discrimination, unjust, unfair. See, partiality means that we base our treatment of someone or our attitude towards someone on something that should not be the basis of how we treat them. It's based on externals. Something we see or something that we perceive to be. See, James uses the word partiality specifically here in terms of how we show discrimination towards the poor and conversely favoritism towards the rich. James uses the term broadly in the passage to describe something in the gospel. We are part in partiality, we create division and shame. James uses the term partiality to appropriately show how we are naturally inclined because of sin to create division and shame among ourselves through favoritism, racism, classism, sexism, nationalism, or any other ism that isn't based on how God sees us. We have a natural tendency in our hearts to divide, to become like someone else and put someone in another category. Impartiality denies the gospel because in the gospel there's unity by creating this division and shame. J.C. Ryle wrote, The man who does not glory in the gospel can surely know little of the plague of sin that is within him. So if we forget about what the gospel says about our identity, who we were, who we are, who we are becoming, it is easy to blind ourselves to the sin of partiality within us. We forget our new identity and try to live out of our old identity, creating division and shame. James relates it back to last week's passage. Partiality creates Division and shame by denying the words of God, the actions of God, and the heart of God. James is very clear in this, so let's take a deeper look at the passage together. Chapter 2, verse number 1. And as we read it, I'm going to try to explain what he's talking about here, about partiality, denying the gospel, and bringing shame. My brothers... He's talking to a body of believers. You who claim to have faith. My brothers. See, this is James' pastoral cry that he is for them. This is a heavy matter, but he is not condemning them. He's with them, and he, he wants them to see this. Show no partiality. This command to not show any kind of favoritism. Whatever that is in your life or your heart that you're drawn to, show no favoritism. But maybe it's a, more importantly, it's a command for unity. See, if there's a favoritism that we show within us, then we're not unified. 
And if we're not unified, we're not one body under Christ and the gospel. It's saying, don't be of this worldview, this worldliness that's among us. See, he is illustrating the natural tendency we have in all our hearts to show favoritism based on some appearance creating division. James is illustrating our natural tendency to shame and be shamed, which is anti-gospel. See, shame is an identity that denies the gospel, saying, you don't belong. Favoritism involves a selective love, which is really selfishness, and definitely not the agape love of the Trinity found in the gospel. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, indeed, James is suggesting that faith and favoritism are incompatible. Little things reveal whether or not our religion is real, and favoritism touches all of the tests and aspects to see whether we have a true saving faith. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he adds this wonderful phrase, the Lord of glory. This is an interesting phrase that only James and Paul use. Glory here is shorthand for the personal presence of the Lord in all His goodness and in the fullness of His revealed character. Glory is a reference to Yahweh. See, James is saying that Jesus is God. He is the God-man. We have James, a devout Jew. Paul, a devout Jew. Taking a title that was among the highest titles for God, Yahweh, the Israelites would have known. So these believing Jews, and he says, the Lord of glory, and gives it to Jesus. He does this to point out that our saving faith is in Yahweh come in the flesh, and he shows not partiality, and neither should we. Because the origin of partiality is either a craving for human glory or fear, both of which deny the gospel. And then he gets into this specific scenario about partiality. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, see, he points this out because it was a common practice, the wearing of rings, the Roman culture, the elite the classy people wore rings. Even in Jews, the Pharisees wore rings. And they would have worn rings on almost all of their fingers. And if they were really rich in a status, they would have worn multiple rings. And if they didn't have a good enough ring for an occasion, there was actually businesses that rented rings out to people. So they could go rent a ring to make sure that people knew that they were of the top. And so he says this man wearing a gold ring... And fine clothing, this gold, literally this gold-fingered man, his, the light would have reflected off of his fingers and he would have been seen as shiny. In bright clothing, this is the guy who came in and he has a three-piece suit. He has all the nicest jewelry. He smells good. Everyone wants to be about around him. And he comes into your assembly 
See, this is a body of believers that have gathered together, whether it's for a corporate worship or a get-together to discuss culture, but it is a body of believers that is gathered together. And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. This poor man would have been so poor that he would have been considered a beggar. It wasn't just that he didn't have money, he had nothing. He would have not been able to feed himself. He would have only had one set of clothing. This word shabby could also be interpreted filthy. The same filthy that in James chapter 1 verse 21, James warns us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. See, his clothing would have been so filthy that no one would have wanted to be by him. This homeless beggar comes in with clothes that the thrift store wouldn't take, probably asking for food and water before he even sits down, and probably smelling like, do I really have to sit by this guy? He comes in, and if, now he's talking to us believers, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, He's contrasting this. So I want to point out, and it's a good thing to treat visitors and people who are important with respect. See, the uh, the usher says, you know, wait a minute, we have the best seat saved for you. I think that's a noble, that could be a good thing. But he sets it up. See, however, this wasn't the kind of kindness and love that was being portrayed here. See, this act of saying you sit here in a good place was an act of selfishness. It was done in the outward appearance with the thought process of this is the kind of guy we need in our church. Oh boy, this guy is going to save our church. He's going to give us lots of money. He's going to be the kind of person that we need. You know, We're going to be able to get that new building started if this guy comes to our church. You sit right over here. Best seats reserved for you. And then it's... For all the kids out there, this is the kid at school that has all the best clothes, all the best gadgets, all the best lunches with all the name brand things that your parent would never buy for you. And you think, hey, I wonder if I'm nice to him, if he'll give me something. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. See, it is the heart of the matter. It's not just that he, you say to stand over there, sit down at my feet. See, at this assembly, there probably wouldn't have been many chairs, so it would have been commonplace to sit or stand in the corner. But it's the heart behind the matter. See, no one wanted to do anything to this poor beggar who smelled, who only had one set of clothing that might encourage him to stay or return. No one showed hospitality to him because they didn't want him there. He was deemed unworthy and without value. He didn't belong here. There was an attitude of contempt and disdain because he didn't bring anything to the table. This is the kid at school who's the youngest of six or seven or eight. 
He wears hand-me-down clothes that were in style a decade ago. He doesn't have any toys. He smells funny. If he has a lunch, it's always PB&J and generic of whatever's left over. And the kid thinks, do I really have to sit by him? And And he says right here, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is saying, have you not created shame? Have you not denied the gospel creating division? The person who shames another is saying in his heart, I'm good enough. Something is not wrong with me that is wrong with you. And therefore, I have the right, the ability, and even the duty to exclude you. To make sure that you feel like you don't belong. See, the evident assumption in this favoritism was that the rich was considered to be morally superior, smarter, more disciplined, more hardworking, and thus a better man, more fit for the kingdom, or more accurately in their mind, what they perceived to be their kingdom. So why do we often brush off the importance of unity and create division and shame among us. And as I thought about that this week, it's convicting. Why do I do that? And I think the scary answer is it makes us feel powerful. It makes us feel godlike. But when in actuality, we're the furthest thing away from God at that point in time. In verse number 5, James calls us back. He says, listen, my beloved brothers. Wake up. Wake up. He begins to express how partiality creates division and shame by denying the words, actions, and heart of God. He poses three rhetorical questions. Has not God chose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? See, this poor is a physical and spiritual sense to it. Has he not chosen those who are poor? See, James is trying to get to the heart of God, the words of God, the actions of God, and what he has done. And the answer is yes. We're all spiritually poor, and yet he chose us. But you have dishonored. You have not loved or cared for him. You have dishonored the poor man. Anti-gospel. We're supposed to show loving compassion to the stranger and sojourner among us. And then he poses two rhetorical questions that really get at the heart. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? The answer to that group of people would have been yes. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? See, at that time, in the body of believers, even the rich believers among people were taking the poor believers to court, and people who were not believers were definitely taking poor believers to court and swaying judgment that they could get more. How does that play out in our life? 
our jobs, the rich in this world, the rich tend to become richer, and yet we try to impress them at times. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Yes. See, this idea of blaspheming the honorable name by which you were called is an idea of blaspheming the marriage vow that Jesus portrays with the church and himself. See, this is an idea of mocking our union with Christ. These last two rhetorical questions point out that believers had lost sight of the gospel. They were feeling shame as their identity. They had bought into the worldliness around them that James had pointed out in the previous chapter and were trying to latch on to this rich the rich people around them, and he portrays it in this rich man, and form a sense of security and belonging that they had forgotten that Christ and the gospel brings to us. See, partiality brings, creates division and shame by denying the words of God. What does God say about partiality and about who he is? The Old Testament is filled with verses about how he's just and impartial. Deuteronomy 10, 16 through 18 says, Circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Just think about that. God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty the awesome God, and then he qualifies it with who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. In the New Testament, Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, he says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you, Who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The Bible is full, God's word are full, that He is an impartial, just God who only looks at the basis of man's soul and not on outward appearance. And so when we, as a body of believers, become impartial, creating any kind of division among us, We have denied the words of God. What what does the Bible say about his actions and how partiality creates division and shame? 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might by his poverty might become rich. Christ came to earth and became poor, giving up everything that we might become rich in Him. God's very action is an impartial God that sees us in need of a Savior. It doesn't matter how much money you make, the color of your skin, your age. He sees us on the basis of our heart. 
1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has a plan to unite all in Him. And in that plan, he chose the poor, he chose the rich. Not on the basis of how much money they had. He's, there's a call that every tongue and every nation will stand before him. That we would boast in nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Partiality creates division and shame by denying the heart of God. First Samuel sixteen seven says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, we tend to, to see what we want to see, to see what fits our model, to see what's going to make our life easier and better. But God treats people with absolute equality, simply and only on the internal condition of the soul, not on the external circumstances. And when the church is anything less than indifferent to the externals, then we cease to be like God. This is a heavy message, and I believe it can leave us feeling beat down and possibly even ashamed at the way we treat people or maybe even our thought process of the way we view people. That's not what James is trying to do here. Quite the opposite. He wants us to see our sin and become more like our Father. And I thought this prayer here in the was fitting and so Daniel Doriani writes on how we can do this we pray something like this Lord I confess that I am a sinner and I cannot stop sinning I play favorites I'm stained by the world I ignore the needy my tongue is out of control my only hope is your mercy forgive me for Jesus sake We do all these things, but we don't have to stand ashamed and beaten down because we do them. We stand in light of the gospel and the forgiveness that he gives that brings unity and a new identity. So when we see sin in our life, we don't need to run and hide, but we go to the God and the gospel who is there, who has saved us, who makes a way that he's forgiven what we've done. See, the gospel creates a unity and a new identity. Galatians three twenty six through 29. For in G- Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. God sees us by the internal measure of our soul. Whether we believed in Jesus or not believed. Ephesians 2. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. By what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that we might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to body, to both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, the shame, the division. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we, have, we both have access to one spirit, to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. But he doesn't, he encourages us to be like him. In Philippians 2, 1 through 8, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. See, Christ didn't just leave us alone with this command to follow of not showing partiality. He gave us an example in himself God in the flesh came to dwell among us. He reached out to the poor and needy. The children came to him when in that culture they shouldn't. 
He accepted the children. He ate with the poor, the needy, the sinners, the outcasts. And he tells us to create unity in that new identity. 1 John 3 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So when we doubt, when we sin, when we show favoritism, we're reassured of ourselves as we see ourselves growing to become more like Christ. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandment abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. So our church, bodies of believers, should be the prime example of God's love for us. We should be an outpouring of unity to the community. We should be an outpouring of love to the people around us who may look differently than us, who may smell differently than us, who are different than us, except for the way God sees them more importantly. J.I. Packer writes, A church's culture should be orthopraxy expressing orthodoxy. What we believe should match what we do, and what we do should match what we believe. It should look like self-giving love for others that in turn reflects the sacrificial love for us of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. See, Christian believer, brother, partiality creates division and shame, thereby denying the gospel. The gospel creates unity and a new identity, causing us to desire to have the words, actions, and heart of God in all areas of our life. My encouragement is to strive for unity in all things. Relish your new identity. Remind yourself of who you are in Christ. And ask yourself, am I becoming more like Him? 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-3 through 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. For we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, 
because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Shame is an identity that has no place in the church because it denies the gospel. And so the remedy to shame, the idea that you are not good enough and don't belong, James says in this passage, is to remember that God in the gospel says, I chose you. Think about it. Dwell on it. Remember how he did it through sending Yahweh in the flesh to dwell among us, die for us. Remember what he has promised to all who have a saving faith. One day we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. An impartial God from whom all grace abundantly flows to all who believe. Let's pray.